What's up, sports fans? It's time for Let Me Speak. I'm Joe Braverman, and on this show, we discuss the big news in the world of sports as heard from me, myself, and I. Here's what we'll be talking about this week. Which teams made a jump and a fall in our weekly NFL rankings? Plus, the NFL coaches who are currently sitting on the hot seat. And the future of college football head coaches after two big names make headlines. You're listening to episode 94 of Let Me Speak. Time to get it started. Fire up that intro. Let Me Speak. On Tuesday, November 14th, 2023, for the 94th edition of this sports podcast, Let Me Speak. Everyone, for tuning in, thank you, thank you so much. We continue to count down. We are getting closer and closer to 100, and by the track we're going, once we get 2024 in, sometime in January, that is when we're going to hit number 100, and I'm very much looking excited uh, to it. Uh, Just a programming note is that we are going to be off next week for the Thanksgiving holiday. So I hope everyone enjoys the holiday next week with their family and their friends and all of their loved ones. Hope they have a tremendous time. And for those of you watching on YouTube, you can see a a big difference is that I am partaking in the No Shave November. So if you're watching on YouTube, you can see a little bit of a mustache here. Did a little trim of the beard, got rid of all that, but kept the mustache going. Uh, We'll keep this going all month long i don't know if there's going to be another episode where you'll be able to see myself like this where the mustache maybe gets a little bit longer uh, a little bit more noticeable not a not really sure how that work i can never tell you know with my body how it grows the uh, facial hair or not it's kind of just all a mystery right now so uh that's that's what's going on up in the air and honestly to me what's up in the air as we transition to talk about sports is our nfl rankings i mean it seems like There's always movement every single week. There's never going to be the same team in the same spot. Very rarely. Uh, But it's just, it's just been so chaotic. And really uh, as we start with our top 10 uh, in the power ranking side of things, the 10 position has to be maybe the hardest one, because I feel like it is so wide open with, uh, you know, I can mention a couple of uh, honorable mentions. We got the, um, I could have put the, uh, Browns, I could have put the Seahawks in there, but I think there is a team and more in particular, a coach I trust. And that is Mike Tomlin and the Steelers uh, just somehow. I, I don't know if it's like defying physics or defying logic, whatever it is, somehow the Steelers are six and three. I mean, yes, they beat the Packers, but they're still six and three. I think that just shows in Mike Tomlin's case, just how effective of a coach he has been. He just continues to get overlooked because not only did he take over for Bill Cowher um, in the late 2000s, of course, he has a Super Bowl to his resume, but he always seems to get overshadowed by guys like Bill Belichick and by Pete Carroll, Sean McVay, Kyle Shanahan, guys who just have sort of this unique coaching style not saying that Mike Tomlin isn't a unique coach who has his own styles but it's something that's not 
eye-catching. You know what I mean? And and the Steelers are always playoff contenders. You know, maybe not Super Bowl contenders every year, but you got to keep in mind, Mike Tomlin has yet to finish uh, sub-500 in all of his coaching uh, with Pittsburgh. And I think that dates back to 2008. So that's a good 15 years or so. So that's much impressive. And he's really the reason why I put Pittsburgh at 10 is because this offense for Pittsburgh, I mean, it starts at the quarterback and the quarterback, Kenny Pickett is not elite, but it's just somehow they always find a way to win. It's almost like they go tell Pickett in the offense, go get us at least 14 or 17 points. We'll take care of it. Cause I mean, they have statistically the fifth, worst scoring offense in the league. I mean, Pickett's numbers should be among the bottom tier of NFL quarterbacks, or at least be the quarterback of a team that's like two and eight or three and seven, something like that. He went 14 of 23 for 126 yards. So the fact that the offense is kind of just stalled out, but they can still find a way to win. Number one is credit to Tomlin. And two, obviously credit to uh, the defense, because Pittsburgh's always going to have a really good defense. Of course, T.J. Watt leading the way, uh, top three in sacks at 10.5. But for next week, though, because they go to Cleveland and they play the Browns, and I'll just give you foreshadowing for this. Um, after next week, one of those two teams, I think, is going to be in the top 10, either the Steelers or the Browns. Whoever wins that, if I had to do a rankings for next week for uh, an episode for next week, it would be either the Steelers or the Browns within this top 10, because I feel like they're just that even they have a lackluster offense, but an elite defense out there. So that's ultimately what I see. It was basically a flip of a coin between Pittsburgh or Cleveland. And I, I trust the head coach. I trust Mike Tomlin more than I do uh, Kevin Stefanski. Um, I just fully expect him to, have his team in a good position to at least contend, maybe not make the playoffs, but at least contend. So that's where I am with number 10. Uh, number nine, I am moving the Jaguars down at uh, six and three after getting totally trounced by the 49ers, who we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, I, I have said for weeks and weeks, uh, I've been praising Jacksonville, how good of a team they have um, set up on both ends of the football, but there's always that one last step for teams that are surging to, uh, until they become really true title contenders. And for me, with Jacksonville, they've got to start winning these games because we've seen them contend in some of these games. I mean, they only lost by one possession to the Chiefs. Um, they got They won a playoff game last year. They need to start winning some of these games. So when opponents like the Niners or uh, the Eagles or any team – that has analysts or anyone saying, oh yeah, that's a team that can go to the Super Bowl. When you can win those games, then you can be uh, taken seriously. So the Jags are still a really good team and a really good playoff team, but Trevor Lawrence and that team still has some work to do. I mean, he had 185 yards and two interceptions against a really good team. So they're kind of in the category of what the Dolphins are in, that they need to win some games against some really good contenders. And I think they'll get that going. Obviously, they won't have that test next week when they play the three and six Titans. But when they get to week 13 and they play the Bengals, and then to week 15 when they play the Ravens, I think those two are going to be really important games. Uh, more so for the Ravens, because everyone's predicting that the Ravens, uh, outside of the Chiefs, are the AFC favorites. They're probably the second best team in the conference. So, if Jacksonville pulls off a win there, 
then I think they can be taken a little bit more seriously. But for right now, because they lost to the 49ers in a big way, I, I just can't see them making a deep run into the playoff. Maybe not get not get to the Super Bowl, not to the, get to the conference championship. I still think they're a really good playoff team, but they're just they got one more step to take. Um, but I aforementioned the Bengals, who the uh, Jags will play in week 13. I'm leaving them at number eight because right as I said, they're turning things around in their back. They lose on a walk-off field goal to the Texans. So I will say I'm not going to put as much stock into this for Cincy because Houston is a surprisingly good team, and it's very hard to stop C.J. Stroud and that Houston offense right now. Um, in the big picture, though, uh, yes, the Bengals are five and four, but I still think they're in a really good spot, regardless of what the division looks like. Um, all Joe Burrow has to do is just limit his mistakes and the offense will be fine, because even though they didn't, he didn't have T Higgins, he still had 347 yards. He connected with Jamar Chase a lot, two big touchdowns, but he had two big picks. So he's got to be able to limit those mistakes defensively, though. I said they're a really underrated team. And I still think that they're an underrated defense, but the thing is they're too reliant on turnovers because they have uh, they're tied for the most takeaways uh, in football. But when you look at yards, they're in the back half, you know, when it, uh, yards allowed pass yards, rush yards. So they're really reliant on getting those takeaways and they have the best turnover differential because Joe Burrow knows how to protect the ball and the offense doesn't create any turnovers. Meanwhile, the defense is reliant on getting those takeaways. So um, they're going to be your classic bend, don't break uh, style of uh, of team. So they got to be able to bend and not break defensively. And Joe Burrow, just limit the turnovers, and the Bengals will be fine. Because ultimately, I think Cleveland's going to hit uh, a wall. The Ravens are a little bit inconsistent, and the Steelers' offense uh, won't be able to save them every single time. So I still think the Bengals are in a good spot, uh, despite being at five and four. Number seven, I am going to put Dallas here. I'm putting the Cowboys here because they absolutely drubbed the Giants 49 to 17. But like I said last week, that was supposed to happen. I said 40 to nothing was going to be absolutely nothing in week one. Now look at week 10, 49 to 17. It got worse. Okay. So we expected this. I mean, I didn't expect maybe 600 yards of offense, but I expected a big, a big win. It was gonna be it was gonna be a big big win. I didn't expect maybe like a forty point win, like week one, maybe like a twenty five or a thirty point win, but not an absolute blowout. I mean, it wasn't even close from the minute they kicked off. I mean, Dak Prescott looked really good against what I thought was a pretty good uh, Giants team. Threw for over four hundred yards, had five touchdowns on the day, four of them in the air, one on the ground, and similar to the rest of the team. As long as they don't get in their own way, then they're going to be fine. Because what has been the story, I mean, what has been the story for Dallas pretty much in the 21st century? You know, maybe not those days of Staubach and Aikman, but like the Tony Romo days, transitioning to the Dak Prescott days, is that they have the talent, but they just always seem to get in their own way. Um, whether it be mistakes, whether it be uh, just get, taking their eye off the ball really quickly. I, they just always seem to have Super Bowl-level talent on their roster, but they can never put it together. So I still won't buy into that because, A, the Giants stink. B, 
B, this is what the Cowboys do uh, inconsistently. And C, I still think there are other teams that are better than them and have a little bit more talent. I mean, I love the C.D. Lamb connection that Dak has, and I like the backfield uh, in Tony Pollard. But really, outside of Pollard and Lamb, there's not really much else, um, at, at least in my eyes, that I could see is a game changer. I mean, Brandon Cooks, he's still a speedster, but he's lost a little bit of it. Michael Gallup doesn't really put fear into anyone. Um, so this is going to come down to Dak Prescott. If he doesn't get in his own way and doesn't throw really bad interceptions, then they're going to be fine. They are going to be fine. And maybe they can turn some things around. I'm not going to bank on it, but at least there's potential there for Dallas. There's always going to be potential because everyone won't stop talking about them. Um, what people do need to start talking about more, though, is the Lions, who I am putting at number six, going in an absolute shootout uh, in L.A. against the Chargers, 41-38. to My goodness, Riley Patterson winning it on the field goal. And really what Jared Goff, Jameer Gibbs, David Montgomery, Amon St. Brown, I mean, I could go off Sam Laporta, the fact that they got 533 total yards, 200 yards rushing uh, on the ground, it's incredible what this offense is able to do. And they're kind of similar in the in the Bengals side of things where the defense isn't going to create those headlines, but they're going to be good enough to help win some games. Um, they leave some concern, um, but it's it's the Chargers. I mean, the Chargers are always going to be in shootouts. It's your basic West Coast style of football where you have an explosive offense and a defense where you have to win 41 to 38 games like that. Um, now, on the offensive side of the ball, being four of third down, four of thirteen on third down does concern me a little bit. But the fact that they did go four for five on fourth, it it is a good sign. But it does leave me a little bit concerned, at least for Dan Campbell and his decision making, because you don't want to be a coach who's basically mirroring what your opponent is doing. Because Brandon Staley would be doing stuff like that. Uh, and if you're mirroring that, like that that four of thirteen on third and four or five on fourth will be something the Chargers would have done. And the fact that Campbell, you know, we know how he is. He wears his emotions on his sleeve. We know he's so outspoken. And um, what concerns me is that when they get into these crucial games, he's going to sort of be ambitious and go for a big time fourth down. That, that would be concerning to me because sometimes, as I usually like to say, uh, sometimes the, the easiest decision is the right decision. But then you overthink it. And that's what I'm afraid Dan Campbell might get to because the Lions have slowly been taking steps from being a winless team to a three-win team to nearly making the playoffs last year to now being a playoff team. If Dan Campbell makes that decision and it bites him in the butt, he's got no one to blame but himself. So that's what would concern me uh, for the Lions in any kind of deep run. I'm not really concerned about the rest of the uh, regular season. Next week, they'll be able to walk over the Bears. At least I think they will. Um, but when it gets down to these crucial games where it might be fighting for home field or it might be a playoff victory, does Dan Campbell make the right decision or does he play it a little risky as he's been all year long? Uh, that's what I think out of Detroit. I still like them. They're one of my teams who I love to root for just because they've got They've got kind of the coolest story out there. You know, they're, they're fan favorites, as I like to say. Uh, number five, I didn't make a change here to the Dolphins because they were on the bye week. And there's not really much more that has to be said that I haven't said already is that 
you need to give the Dolphins a chance to win against these good teams. Now, next week, they've got the Raiders at 5-5, five and five, but I kind of think that Las Vegas is in a mirage right now. They're just riding high off of getting rid of McDaniels and bringing in Antonio Pierce, um, and they've had two really easy opponents in the Giants and the Jets. Um, so I, I think the Dolphins will win this one, but I'm not going to count this because they're not a winning team, even though it says they're 5-5. Five and five. Give me the plus 500 teams that give me the concern uh, for the Dolphins. You know, later on the schedule when uh, they've got to play, you know, I, I think they're going to be playing the Bills again. I know they're 5-5, five and five, but they're still a, a very good team. Just let me see the Dolphins against more attractive opponents for them. Attractive winning teams. So that's what I say. That's why the Dolphins have to stay at number five for me because they were idle and I still don't believe that they can win against 500 teams. Uh, moving on, though, to number four, I would say the concern is out on the 49ers after absolutely destroying the Jaguars. Uh, I mentioned that game 34 to three. And like I had said, that bye week was absolutely perfect timing for San Francisco. It got everyone to regroup after losing three straight. Brock Purdy can just take a deep breath. Kyle Shanahan can get his guys under control. Of course, you get Debo Samuel back in the lineup. You have a healthy McCaffrey. Um, and even against a tough Jacksonville D team, this 49ers team looked like it did a couple weeks ago before they went on that streak. 437 yards of offense, uh, 144 on the ground. Brock Purdy. Looked like the old Brock Purdy that we've been used to seeing. 19 of 26 for 296 and three touchdowns. But more so defensively, they looked like they should have been. They they looked so, so good against Jacksonville, especially after acquiring Chase Young. So when you have Chase Young and Nick Bosa on uh, each side of the field, not to mention uh, Hargrave as well uh, and Eric Armstead as well, they got five sacks of Trevor Lawrence. So... You combine that with also a pretty good secondary, uh, Traverius Ward, Tashawn Gibson, just to name a few. And of course, Fred Warner at linebacker, one of the more underrated uh, defenders, I think, in the league. I think the San Francisco team is elite again. So was I, I mean, I was a little bit panicked when they had uh, that three straight, those three straight losses. I was a little bit panicked, but I wasn't going to, you know, fully hit the panic button and say, it's over. The Niners can't do it. The Niners can't do it. That's why it was good for them to have that bye week so that they could regroup and sort of get in the right mental space. Because for a guy like Brock Purdy, since he became Niners uh, quarterback, he hasn't had any adversity, really. Like, even the only adversity he had was in the NFC Championship game, and he hurt his arm, you know? So the fact that this was sort of his first adversity and he was able to overcome that after the bye week, gives me a good sign. So I think the Niners are right back to where they should be uh, amongst the top of the NFC teams. Uh, moving on, though, to the top three, uh, I'm going to put number three on the Ravens here. I initially had them near the top, um, but again, they just do what Baltimore does. You know, another game-winning field goal loss. I think there were like six of them this week uh, for week 10, so they were one of them. Um, they lose to the Browns 33 to 31. Um, and, and again, it's just their flaws coming out, you know, especially for Lamar Jackson. I mean, think about this. You put up 31 points, but Lamar Jackson is only going 13 of 23 for 223 yards and a, a touchdown. And of course, he rushed eight times for 41 yards. So as I as I've said week after week, the passing and the lack of rushing 
from guys not named Lamar Jackson are the biggest issues for Baltimore right now. He had two really bad interceptions, including the pick six uh, that led to the the game winner for uh, for Cleveland. And then, as I said, eight rushes, 41 yards. He led the team. You can't have that. Your running back needs to be your leading rusher because, yes, Lamar is magical when he escapes the pocket and he has to run for his life. But the issue is you can't be relying on that every single time. So Lamar has to do it with his arm. He's got to throw more and or he's got to let someone else be the lead guy. And that was the issue. I mean, yes, Cleveland's defense is one of the best uh, in football, but they're not the best if you gave up 31 and you had your chances. So I look squarely on Lamar and that running back room. Someone's got to emerge. Maybe it's Mitchell. Maybe it's Gus Edwards. Maybe it's Justice Hill. But someone's got to bail Lamar out so that he can focus more on his throwing than rather than scrambling for his life. That's the issue I see with Baltimore. I still think they're a good team. But, I mean, as I said, they're a really, they're a really good team, but they've still got their flaws, and they just continue to show every single time we start hyping him up. Remember last week we were saying, oh, they're maybe the second best team in the AFC. Then looks what look what happens. They uh, totally blow it against the Browns and the division opponent. But, I mean, they'll be right back at it Thursday night football against the Bengals. I'm very excited for that one. I think whoever wins that one is going to be in the driver's seat, uh, at least in the playoff spot. I think they're going to be in their head. Uh, because remember, uh, Baltimore beat Cincinnati earlier. But if Cincy gets them right back, there's no doubt there's a mental game uh, in that one, too. The top two, to me, are going unchanged because they were both in a bye week. The second team, uh, number two team I'm putting are the Chiefs. Uh, again, nothing more needs to be said there. And then number one, I'm putting the Eagles. Um, I, I'm, I'm lumping these two together because they're going to play each other in Monday Night Football. And I think this has the potential to be the game of the year between these two. Obviously, it's a Super Bowl rematch where a penalty call basically decided things and gave Kansas City that Super Bowl. But I'm really curious to see how they do against each other. For Kansas City's side, how do they do offensively uh, against this Eagles D? Because as I've said over and over, Philly is not as dominant as they were a year ago. But they still have their really good record at 8-1. So I want to see how Mahomes attacks uh, this offense. Is this going to be a high-scoring game? Is it going to be a low-scoring game? Uh, and then on the other side for the Eagles, um, they have trouble in the red zone. And um, we know that they can move the ball right down the field, but when they get to that red zone, do we see uh, some pressure from Kansas City that gets into Philly and makes them turn the football over? I have no idea how that's going to work. Um, but I think whoever wins that game is going to be the number one team. Again, I'll say it right here. If I had rankings next week, whoever would win this game is going to be the number one team. That's how I see it. Obviously, depending on the result uh, in that number two or that number three spot, I don't know. But I think the fact that these two are playing each other is great. And I'm so excited. That's I don't rarely watch the, the Monday night games from start to finish. I mean, I usually miss the first couple of possessions or you know come back from halftime too late or something like that. Um, but this one I'm hoping to watch from start to finish because it's just that entertaining. Um, so there's your top 10. A lot of those teams are playing each other. So there's no doubt in my mind, there's going to be movement from the, uh, the next time we do these rankings. 
On to the bottom 10, though. Again, this was the 10 spot I really struggled with because the teams who I thought were bad are turning the corner, and then the teams who I thought were going to be good are coming back down to earth. And I hate to put uh, this team at number 10 because they were on a bye week, but I just have to put the LA Rams here. But I mean, as I said, they were on a bye, but they've lost three straight. I'm, I really look more at the Cowboys and the Steelers' loss. Uh, more importantly, not so much the one... Uh, from last week when Stafford didn't play against Green Bay. I just think they're really inconsistent. I mean, they're too inconsistent considering all the talent that they have. I really like their offense. I like Cooper Cup uh, being back to almost where he was. I love uh, Puka Nakua and Tutu Atwell uh, complimenting them as well. I mean, the running game is a little bit suspect and then defensively you just give them an elite defense and they're in trouble um but you also got to keep in mind this is a hard schedule that they're going against okay um the Niners the Bengals the Eagles the Steelers and the Cowboys are all most of the teams that they have lost to so that's why I'm putting them at 10 and not anything lower despite being at three and six um maybe they'll make a, a firm plant on it against the Seahawks this weekend that's kind of like a wait and see for that one uh, number nine, I got to welcome this team back to the bottom 10, and that's the Jets who lost to the Raiders on Sunday night, 16 to 12. I'll just put it at you like this. The reason why they weren't in the top 10 was because even though Zach Wilson takes them nowhere, they were still winning games. And I know some opponents were a little bit, eh, I know they had a really bad game against uh, the Giants, even, and they won that game. Um, and yes, they were competitive against the Raiders, but come on. This offense looks like garbage with Zach Wilson at the quarterback. I mean, they've gone 11 straight quarters without scoring a touchdown. They've got the fourth worst offense in yards per game, the third worst scoring offense. Zach Wilson himself has the third worst completion percentage in QBR among starters. He's only completing about 60% of his passes. And Brees Hall can only do so much. All these talented guys can only do so much. Garrett Wilson can only catch the ball X amount of times on his throws. Brees Hall can only run X amount of times. So Zach Wilson is the reason that this team is failing. And they're kind of hoping that Aaron Rodgers is right on his timeline, uh, that he gets him to December. Because if Zach Wilson stays the quarterback any longer, the Jets are going right back down to the bottom. And they better hope that whenever Rodgers comes back, he has some kind of form of that MVP level. Because I said with Rodgers and the defense, and everything they had, they were a playoff team. And I still believe that if Rodgers uh, can play to where he was before uh, he hurt his Achilles. So it's a wait and see on the future, but for now, the Jets are back in the bottom 10. Uh, number eight, I dropped this team down two spots because, again, look at what they've been doing, and that's the Falcons at four and six, dropping to Kyler Murray and the Cardinals. I'll just put it like this. Similar to the Jets, Atlanta has a quarterback issue, and Honestly, they should have fixed this last offseason. I mean, you've got Desmond Ritter, who was benched. You bring in Taylor Heineke. Then Heineke exits with an injury. You have to go back to Ritter. I mean, let's put it to you like this. Against the Cardinals, they scored 70 passing yards. 70 passing yards compared to 184 rushing yards. So I don't understand what Arthur Smith, what the heck his game plan is doing. The fact that he's not allowing the quarterback. I mean, not only do the quarterbacks stink, but it seems like he's focused too much on being cute in the red zone, okay? He's not using one of the best running backs out there, Bijan Robinson, in crucial red zone situations. He's just 
letting him run anywhere else. But look at who they have. They have Kyle Pitts, who is arguably one of the best tight ends after his rookie year. You brought on Jonu Smith, who, yes, struggled in New England, but still has the like better athleticism for a tight end. And then you obviously use a big pick on Drake London, and you have yet to use them in any big-time situation. So this is really a quarterback and a game plan situation. They need a new quarterback, and in my eyes, they might need a new coach, who we'll get to in a little bit. Um, but that's where I have to put the Falcons uh, at number four, at uh, number eight, at four and six. And who knows? Maybe they can turn things around with a bye week. We'll wait and see on that one. Uh, number seven, I'm putting the Titans here, dropping to three and six after losing to the Bucks. Let's just put it like this: uh, they b- better hope that the rest of their games are played in Nashville because road they can't do anything on the road. They're zero and five on the road now. Will Levis still has potential for me. Um, And the way I see a guy like Will Levis and really all young quarterbacks in general, they need a strong run game to help them out. And Levis doesn't didn't get that, at least for Sunday. I mean, the Titans only had 42 rushing yards as a team, and they only got 24 on 11 rushes from Derrick Henry. So the offense still has a lot of work to do um, to help out Will Levis. They need much more in the running game, and they're not going to get any help when they play Jacksonville uh, next week. Number six, I'm going to the Packers on this one. I say it, said it once, I say it again. Jordan Love is just, he cannot carry the load. He cannot do everything by himself. Uh, 116 rushing yards to his 21 of 40 for 286 and two touchdowns. But again, two more interceptions. I mean, he's up there among most interceptions thrown. Josh Allen took over the lead, but he's right there with Mac Jones as well. And then among regular starters at quarterbacks, he's got the worst completion percentage at 58.7. So his decision-making has to get so much better. Um, And not only that, but he's not getting any help from the run defense as well. The Green Bay's run defense is sixth worst in the league. The fact that they allowed 205 on the ground, along with two touchdowns against the Steelers, against the Steelers who have maybe one of the worst offenses in football, but yet somehow are still six and three. As I said, testament to Mike Tompkins on that one. But Green Bay is in a world of trouble if Jordan Love just keeps this going. He's got to turn things around. He's got to turn it around fast, in my eyes. Number four, I'm going to go to uh, five, excuse me. I'm going to go to Chicago on this one. The Bears, yes, they got a win, but it was against the Panthers. Now, I do think there is potential. You know, everyone was so down on Chicago the past couple of weeks. I don't know what it was that happened with Justin Fields, but they do have potential as long as they get a capable quarterback. And I think this next stretch, this last stretch of games is going to be incredibly important uh, for Chicago and more so for Justin Fields because uh, Chicago's got two picks. They've got the Panthers pick, which is most likely going to be top three, and then wherever their own pick uh, lands. So, and you got to keep in mind that this is a really deep quarterback draft. Okay, you got so many guys uh, to choose from. And if Justin Fields can play well and show flashes of that elite talent that he did uh, a year ago, then they have a lot more flexibility to choose from. So really, Justin Fields needs to play well. And the schedule is really, really important. They've got Detroit twice, Minnesota, Cleveland, Arizona, Atlanta, and Green Bay. Um As I said, the potential is there, but it all comes down to Justin Fields. If Fields plays well, then I think he secured his job for at least one more season. If not, we might be seeing a trade where Fields finds himself a new team. That's 
That's ultimately what I think is going down uh, in Chicago. Number four, I'm going to go to the Cardinals on this one because there's life. There is life in Arizona thanks to Kyler Murray. I mean, yes, he didn't look like the same quarterback that he was uh, a year or two ago, but there is at least hope considering you had Josh Dobbs who went, I think, one and seven, and then Clayton Toon who looked horrible last week. Now you get a capable guy in Kyler Murray, and you can just tell what that did to Arizona. I guess they won on the field goal, but there is potential. I mean, it was bad on Arizona for not planning better for Murray's absence. I would have gotten someone better than Josh Dobbs on the quarterback market. You know, maybe that was like a Jimmy G situation. I don't know. But Kyler Murray just changes the whole game for the Cardinals. Not saying they're automatically going to go on a run and go 9-8 and eight here, but at least there's hope. There is hope in Arizona. Uh, number three, this is another big drop, and it's got to be the hometown Patriots here who put up a dud against the Colts in Germany 10-6. to six. And let's just put it to you like this. Mac Jones's career just ended with that terrible interception that got him benched, and there is a rebuild coming. They just don't have enough talent compared to everyone else uh, in the NFL. And uh, we'll talk more about it in our Let's Get Local, but they've got a lot of deep thinking to do on their bye week this week. That's what I think is going to go down. They're not as bad, though, as the number two team, and that's the Giants, because they get drubbed by the Cowboys. It's exactly what I expected uh, when you have Tommy DeVito and an offense with literally no weapons out on the field. I mean, Saquon Barkley is really the only viable option, and when he struggles, the whole team struggles. So I, there was nothing more to be said about how bad this uh, Giants offense is. Um, and I'm sorry to say it for all you Carolina fans, but it was a short-lived week, not in the bottom, because the number one team who I think is the worst in the NFL is the Panthers, who lost to the Bears on Thursday night football. The The concerning thing, though, is that Bryce Young should be getting better the more games he plays in the NFL, but he just seems to be getting worse, okay? On Thursday, he went 21 of 38 for only 185 yards. And you got to think statistically, you know, listen to this. Second worst QBR, 33.1. Third worst offense. Fourth worst scoring team. Um, yes, he's not getting any help uh, from the run game as well. I mean, the tools are there, but literally nothing is working. Nothing is working. So I don't even know if Frank Reich makes it more than one season uh, in Carolina, uh, which transitions outside of our bottom 10 rankings, which is where I see the league, to our next topic uh when we take come back from a really short break and talk about some of the coaches who are sitting on the hot seat and might find their way out of the door at the end of this regular season in the nfl Staying in the NFL, I want to look at really the head positions out here. And that's the head coaches. Some teams that are in our power or bottom rankings and some teams that might be right sandwiched in between in between uh, within that mark. And some of the coaches are definitely for sure on their way out the door. Others, I think, have a little bit of a skepticism in terms of is it the right move to get rid of them? I think... Number one, at least on my end, is Bill Belichick. I've been saying years and years and years that he's just lost his touch 
um, at least as a, a general manager. So I think he's on his way out the door. Um, not to say he won't get a coaching job elsewhere, because I'm pretty sure there are 31 other teams that would pick him up in a heartbeat. So I think Belichick is going to be gone. Uh, the bigger one I wanted to dive into was Sean McDermott. I mean, he's got Buffalo in a really, really bad spot. This was a team with Super Bowl expectations. And after their gaffe against Denver uh, on Monday night, they're now sitting at five and five. And just think about the mistakes that Buffalo was making on the field. I know they can't all be put on Sean McDermott, but the interceptions from Josh Allen, uh, the fumbles from Josh Allen. Um, but then on that last drive, you got Taron Johnson being called for pass interference. Um and then the one that really stuck out to me, though, was the transition in that fourth quarter, if you were watching it. It was the very last play for Denver. Uh, the offense goes, they run, they take a knee, then they quickly transition to the field goal unit, and the kick is no good. Buffalo's going to win. Only problem is 12 men were on the field. And then that gives Denver another chance. They kick it. It's good. Game over. Bills are at 5-5. Five and five. That 12 men is on Sean McDermott. And we've all had our uh, skepticism on McDermott year after year after year. And they just get louder and louder and louder. This year, it might be the loudest it's ever, ever been. And I think at the end of the season, regardless of what happens at Buffalo, if it does not end in a championship, he's going to be out the door. And it can't just be offensive coordinator Ken Dorsey being shown the door because that's not going to do it. I know the Bills fired him and think, oh, that's magically going to turn things around. But... Ever since Brian Dayball took the head coaching job of the Giants, Josh Allen and the Bills offense has not looked the same. And they just cannot make the big-time play when they have to. And that goes down to Sean McDermott. I mean, I, I don't think there's a... I don't think it's a, you know... It, it's not like a Bill Belichick or a Ron Rivera situation where uh, players have just sort of tuned him out or whatever. I just think it comes down to execution. And Sean McDermott is on he's he's the guy in charge he's the fall guy he's the guy because you can't fire play you can't fire the team you gotta fire the coach so sean mcdermott he's got his flaws it just turns out that the flaws are coming at an absolute worst time so i think that he's gonna find himself without a job he's gonna be sent on his way out of buffalo and i don't even think if they miss the playoffs that they would wait more than an hour I would say if the Bills miss the playoffs, then an hour after their final game or less is when he is going to be given the boot. That's ultimately where I think this is going down for Buffalo because they already made a commitment to Josh Allen and they're hoping that he can sort of rally Stephon Diggs to not request a trade. Because remember, this all started, um, or I guess the noise was a little bit louder when Diggs was screaming at uh Josh Allen in that loss to Cincinnati in the playoffs. And then you also got to keep in mind the 13 seconds uh, against Kansas city the year before that. I mean, it's just been chaos, you know, Sean McDermott, I think he's going to be one of those guys on a, uh, you know, whether it's right after the game or on the famous black Monday, when the season ends, I think his time as head coach of the bills is going to be gone. Um, but I did mention Brian Dable, the guy who uh, was the offensive coordinator at the time. He takes the giant Giants job. It turns out that he's just a flash after last season. Now, I won't put it entirely on him. It's not entirely his fault because, honestly, they just don't have any capable receivers. So I think they need to go out into the market and get a bona fide number one. 
because they've got a good running back, as I mentioned in Saquon. Darren Waller, yes, he hasn't played, but he can still be an effective tight end when he's out there. But honestly, are guys like Wandale Robinson, Darius Slayton, are those guys that are going to strike fear in any defenses when they go against the Giants? No, they need a bona fide number one. And I would give Brian Dable another chance. You know, I, I always say third time is the charm because there's no way that this Giants team can go from a playoff team to the bottom of the league, you know, just like that. Now, I could see a midseason firing next year if uh, things aren't working out for the Giants, but it starts in the offseason and they need to get receivers. So I would hang on to Brian Dayball just for a little bit longer. And if it doesn't work as you're going through the season, then you can kick him to the curb. But right now, I'm not ready to give up on him just yet because we saw last year how the team rallied around him. The fact that they took down uh, Minnesota, uh, they they really put uh, they gave him a, a challenge there uh, to the Vikings. So there there's still potential there. So I'm holding on to Brian Dable if uh, if I'm the uh, the owners of the New York Football Giants. Um, the big one though, I think another one that's been cat- catching headlines is Ron Rivera. It seems like he's on his way out of Washington. He just, he's no doubt got respect. He has respect, but I just think his message is just being tuned out. I mean, it's always, it always seems like his decisions are being made at the latest time. You know, he went with Sam Howell in the very last game last year, and then they gave him the keys. Like he had to go to Howell much earlier than that. If you wanted to have any sort of hope, I guess, because they've got the talent. I like, I, I, talked last week about the commanders that I like Gibson. I like McLaurin and that they needed another receiver or two. So they have the pieces, but it's just something about it. There's something that isn't connecting with Ron Rivera. So I hate to say it, but I think he's on his way out the door uh, in Washington. This one should be no question. Brandon Staley to me is losing patience. I think I'm losing a lot of patience. Uh, the fact that the chargers have this, Arguably a top 10 quarterback in Justin Herbert. They've got a top five running back in Austin Eckler. um, And they've got all these pieces. But somehow he just continues to blow it away with his just his bad decision making. And, you know, some it's really 50 50 um, in that the decisions will work out or they won't work out. And. I don't know how many more times those decisions have to be made. Uh, for someone to say, oh, it's kind of risky, Staley. I don't know if I would go with that. I don't know if I'd go on it. Uh, fourth down and six on your own 30-yard line. That's just how I see it with Staley. He's just, he's trying to be smarter than he really is. Um, And I expect, I would be very shocked if he does not get fired. Because even though they made the playoffs, that 27 to nothing blown lead, where they and then they lost in the playoffs to Jacksonville. That should that should have been a wake up call. It should have been a wake up call. But apparently the Chargers want to stick by him at least for one full season. I think it's similar to Sean McDermott. After that final game for LA, less than an hour, he should be gone, or he should be one of those coaches on Black Monday. That's what I'm expecting out of Brandon Staley, and I'd be shocked if it doesn't happen. I would be very very shocked about that. Uh, one last coach I had mentioned, Arthur Smith. Um, I had mentioned his situation and I did not stutter. And apparently he's got support from uh, the owner, Arthur Blank. And I don't know why. I don't know why. It's just been a revolving door of quarterbacks and a revolving door of suck 
ultimately that I see. And it doesn't, I don't see any sort of potential unless they have a new guy in charge. Now, maybe blank is going, you know, decision by decision. Maybe they're one of those teams in the draft that goes for one of those quarterbacks. And if the quarterback isn't showing flashes of what he could be, then you get rid of Smith. But ultimately, I would just do it right now. I'd do a full-fledged restart because you've got your running back. You've got some receiving options. Like, just get rid of them now. Why wait until the end of the year? Are you just going to continue tanking for a, a worse draft pick? I don't know. But I would get rid of Arthur Smith. I would be the one who would uh, want to show him the door outside of Atlanta. Um, so that's kind of where things are, at least on the head coaching side of things. But up next, we'll stick with head coaches and go to college football among our many topics we'll be talking about in our quick hit segment. Coming back and bringing you another quick hit segment, five quick subjects that we'll want to get into that we didn't get to earlier in the show. And I teased it right here, but let's just get into it. The big story in college football has been Jim Harbaugh once again in 2023 is getting suspended for the illegal off-campus sign stealing, whatever that thing is. Uh, but anyway, he's suspended for the last regular season games of Michigan season and the big one to me is that he's not going to be there for Ohio State, um, but that's on the field. Off the field, the problem is that he had the knowledge of it and that he's kind of just standing up there and not admitting it. You know, if I bet if he would have owned up and be like, yes, we did this and I regret it or something like that, if it could have been a lesser punishment. But now, you know, they're knee deep saying that they had no knowledge or anything like that. It was just on this recruiter that they fired. Every past and present Michigan alum is saying bet on Twitter. Um, I, I mentioned it last week, is that it depends on the context of the sign stealing. If there was any kind of knowledge and you went above and beyond to do these sign stealings, then it becomes an issue. But if you're just standing there on the sideline and you look over on the other side and you see these signs, then you can use it. So, I mean, some sometimes there are some, there are some fans who want to take Michigan down a peg or whatever. I don't really see the big deal of this. I think Jim Harbaugh, as I said, is on his way out and he's going back into the NFL. So it's really going to be much ado about nothing. And honestly, I don't really care um, if Michigan wins it all or not, because I don't think that's going to change that Harbaugh um, will leave that job and he will be attractive for someone in the NFL. He'll get he'll get some he'll get some kind of interest um, because there's going to be so many guys, at least in the college game, at his neck. We know people in the Big Ten are going after him. Everyone nationally is kind of going after him. So this ultimately will be much ado about nothing uh, if once the uh, season comes to an end and Harbaugh's back on the sidelines. Um, depending on if they're playing for the Big Ten Championship, I don't know. They've got to get past Ohio State. So it's kind of just a wait and see. But ultimately, I don't see the big deal of this because Harbaugh is going to leave anyway. That's just, that's what I see coming out of this. Staying though in the college game, there was another head coach who got uh, some big headlines in the worst way. And that was Jimbo Fisher, 
because he's no longer a head coach. He got fired on Sunday by Texas A&M and bought out for a record $76 million. I mean, the big thing for me is that you got to stop with these big contracts for these big coaches. Like, they value the coach more than the players. And, yes, there's still, like, NIL deals going on, but players got to go do that for themselves. I mean, why are Power 5 schools so invested on wanting their guy? I don't think they have to go that desperately. Because you got to remember that when Jimbo Fisher went from Florida State to AM, he turned the program around. And then it led him to the extension in 21. But since that extension was agreed to in 21, Texas AM is 19 and 14 and 10 and 13 in SEC play. That's not good. That's not good. People in Texas AM were expecting that this is a team that competes with Alabama, with LSU with all of these SEC teams and has themselves in the national championship category. That's not the case, which is why you can't commit. I mean, this is why I'm against big contracts in general, but more specifically against head coaches, because you're going on recent memory. It's not, what have you done? And we know that the sports landscape is not a, what have you done for me lately? It's not, it's not that kind of uh, style. It's not that style at all. So I am not surprised at all. Because Power 5 schools just do this once again. They hand out the big money, and then it's absolutely nothing for them to get this kind of buyout. They just have to stop with this long-term dedication to some of these big uh, big names and these big coach contracts. That's how I see uh, with that. But staying in the college game, uh, lo and behold, college basketball is now underway. Of course, we're in the middle of the football season, so it kind of goes unnoticed. But we've already seen some big-time upsets. I mean, on the women's side, you had the defending chance LSU fall in their opener to Colorado. You had UConn go down to NC State. And then on the men's side, you had Michigan State and Duke already go down. Now, I will say right here that I do not pay attention to college basketball, men and women. I don't really pay attention to that at all until we get to the March Madness side. But at least from my optical viewing, I see more of a clear picture on the women's side. And I see... Iowa, and I see Caitlin Clark on a revenge tour. I think they will come back, and they will come away with the title on the women's side. The men's side, I don't have a clue. <laughs> I don't have a clue at all because so many of these uh, men's players are either doing one and done or are going to, like, G League or international. Like, the college, the men's college landscape is not the way it once was. But we obviously know the big name of Michigan State had head coach Tom Izzo. We know Kansas, uh, UConn, Gonzaga. I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you. I can tell you who I think will win it all uh, on the women's side. The men's side, I will say, talk to me in March when uh, we start filling out, filling out brackets and I actually start paying attention a little bit more. <laughs> That's how I'm seeing. Sorry for all you college basketball fans out there. Uh, but staying on basketball, I want to go to the pro side. And the big story that at least I have noticed is that the Clippers have been getting worse since getting James Harden, okay? You need to keep in mind, this is a team I don't believe that they have won a game since uh, James Harden was acquired by the Clippers. I'm just uh, pulling up their schedule real quick because I know they were 0-4 and and just... Because uh, it, it was to the Knicks uh, was his very first game. It was the Nets as well. Uh, and then 
Okay, they played tonight. I thought they had played the uh, Nuggets last night, but for most likely it will be 0-5 uh, with, with James Harden as a member of the Clippers. It was to the Knicks, the Nets, the Mavericks, and the last place Grizzlies. That's how awful it's gotten. And Harden is nowhere near what he was. I mean, so far his averages with LA are 13.5 points, five rebounds, and four assists per game. And you got to keep in mind why on earth the Clippers would try and go for this sort of dynamic. You've got four 30-year-old veterans who aren't close to what they used to be, and they have different play styles. You've got Kawhi Leonard, who always gets hurt. Paul George uh, has not stepped up in big moments. Russell Westbrook has been on team after team after team, and Harden is just a loose cannon. So I didn't expect this thing to work at all. And we know what's going to happen. We know exactly what the Mavericks broadcaster said is this is all going to go down the drain and Harden's going to point fingers at everywhere but himself. So that's going to be the issue. But the good news is um, I don't think he's got any kind of long-term extension. So it's really going to be his decision on um, where he plays next. It's no longer I'm going to force myself out of here. Because ultimately, if I was any kind of GM or whatever, and I see James Harden once again, um, not just forcing his way out of a, another franchise, but now struggling on that franchise, I wouldn't want to bring him on. Not at all. I wouldn't bring him on. I mean, yes, he's, I think he's like 35 or something like that. So age plays the factor, but just off the court, I know that I'm only going to get like a one-year dedic. I'm only going to get a one-year commitment out of Harden. So ultimately, I would just say it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Um, you know, you feel bad for the Clippers because they were once a good team and then they shopped everyone off just to get this one guy. And they say that it's going to turn around, but ultimately, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to be the case because Philly's doing really good. You got their new point guard, Tyrese Maxey, putting up 50 points. Joel Embiid really seems to like him. Um, so who really won that trade? Because the Clippers didn't. As of right now, the Sixers won the trade getting rid of James Harden. Maybe Joel Embiid thought, huh, maybe it was okay to get rid of James Harden. You know, just self, self-reflecting. Self-reflect, please. James Harden, stop being a nuisance on every franchise you go to. Um, maybe the Clippers will turn it around. Maybe they'll get into the play-in. I mean, yes, it's only nine games into the season, and there are like 73 still left to go. But as of right now, people can enjoy. If you're If you're not fans of James Harden, you can be very thrilled to see that their team just continues to lose. He's got to remember, LA started three and one. And now since they've gotten James Harden, they're 0 and five or 0 and four. They haven't won a game with James Harden. <laughs> I'm not a James Harden fan, so I take it uh, very exciting. Lastly here, obviously the MLB season isn't quite over yet because there are awards to be given out. And we've already heard uh, from a, we've already gotten a few of them. We know who's gotten the silver sluggers, the gold gloves. We just found out last night that Corbin Carroll and Gunnar Henderson were the rookies of the year. No doubt there. Um, I think tonight, uh, when we record before we record, they have yet to decide the managers, but we've also got the managers, the Cy Youngs, the MVPs. Um, for manager of the year in the AL, I would go Brandon Hyde from Baltimore over Kevin Katz and Bruce Bochy. Let's face it. This guy, Brandon Hyde, took a team that had won 100-plus, like two or three straight years, to the AL's best record. So there's no doubt in my mind that should be a runaway for Brandon Hyde. National League, I would probably go with Skip Schumacher 
uh, because he took that Marlins team to the playoffs and no one ever noticed it. Uh, again, over Craig Council and over Bre- uh, Brandon Snicker, I would go with Shoemaker. Um, in the Cy Young, uh, I hate to say it, but I think Garrett Cole's probably going to win that award. If Shohei Otani didn't get hurt, it probably would have gone to him. Um, but really, I, there wasn't really no one big dominant pitcher um, in the American League. Um, but Garrett Cole was probably the closest thing to it. I would probably go with him. And then National League, I would say, you know, that 2-2-5 ERA from Blake Snell, which led the majors, that that does it for me. I thought it was going to be Justin Steele, but Cubs kind of collapsed there. Um, so I would go Blake Snell to get the National League Cy Young, to go on top of the American League Cy Young that he just won. And then lastly on MVP, the, the National League is easy. I think it should be Ronald Acuna. The fact that he was making history just automatically qualifies him. I don't know. I don't care how good Mookie Betts or Freddie Freeman did, but if you're Ron, if you're making history by getting 40 home runs and 70 stolen bases, the very first person in the 100-plus years of major leagues to do that, you should win that award. Um, the, the American League is really tough. You have Otani, you have Corey Seager, you have Marcus Semien. I think the postseason might have done it for him. And I know it's a regular season award, but I think Corey Seager might have done something uh, just being the leader on that Texas team that won the World Series. I think that that just does it. I think that's how the voters will see it. I don't know if Otani really did that much in the second half of the year after he got hurt being a pitcher to really take him over the top. So I think if it's not Seager, it's going to be Otani. But I would lean my money slightly to Seager just because there's always an MVP that you think is going to win and and doesn't. You know, look, in past years, I remember Mookie Betts could have won, but it went to Mike Trout. Everyone was saying Aaron Judge was going to win, but then it went to Jose Altuve. Um, so that's that's what I'm thinking is going to happen. I think they're going to look more at the postseason, even though it shouldn't really factor at all um, for Corey Seager to win it all. So that's how I see the MLB awards uh, going down. And then we can get into more of the juicy stuff. And that is the MLB offseason uh, once these awards are announced. But those are your little topics we'll, uh, we've gotten into here in our quick hit segment. But we'll now go to our Let's Get Local segment and dive deep into the Boston sports landscape where things might be positive on one side, but just a total dumpster fire on the other. This is our city. Now for all you Boston fans out there, we do what we do every week at this time and get to our let's get local. And I hate to start it on a negative note every single time, but it's the story that no one can talk about just how bad the Patriots are, because let's face it. We've had 25 years of bliss. It's been even when the team has underperformed, it's been like, okay, they're still entertaining. There's nothing entertaining about this 2023 team. Not at all. I mean, 10 to, it was a, it was a struggle to watch that 10 to 6 loss to Gardner Minshew and the Indianapolis Colts in Germany. And I'm just going to be referencing a lot of what our six rings postgame guys said, Nick Fitzy Stevens, Andy Hart, and myself. We'll just put it like this. In the postgame, Bill Belichick had said that benching Mac Jones and going to Bailey Zappi on that final drive, uh, his response was, you know, we just felt a change was needed. Well, guess what, Bill? 
Change is needed, but not for what you think. Because we are all in agreement. The three of us were in agreement that Belichick's got to go. And there's there's no doubt that it's going to be at the end of the year. Because even though, yes, it looks absolutely awful, it looks like the locker room has tuned him out. Um, you got a guy like Jack Jones who got cut for just a really bad attitude. Um, we'll get into Jack Jones in a little bit. But if it wasn't Bill Belichick, he would have been gone three weeks ago. The fact is, he still has respect out there. I know everyone's going to argue, oh, Brady made Belichick. Belichick could be nothing without the greatest quarterback of all time. He wouldn't have six Super Bowl ranks. Well, guess what? He still has six Super Bowl ranks. So you're not just going to kick him to the street uh, like just some other head coach. You know, yeah, yes, it's frustrating to watch and to listen to him and to see the team perform, but you still need to have that respect of he's still one of the top coaches out there. And it would be disingenuous to just drop him in the middle of the season, especially now that you're in the bye week and you have like, what, seven more games left to go, something like that. So I think when it comes to the end of the year, he should absolutely be gone. No doubt about it. That change is needed for this team. At the end of the season, Belichick should be gone. Now, the interesting part, though, what we learned about was um, Bill Belichick's contract was that um, it was reported a couple weeks ago that he signed an extension uh, or basically a new contract um, for which we're now finding out for me in Rappaport was that he was signed through this year and through next year. Now, not saying that the contract, you know, totally limits him to be coming back um, to 2024. There can be like a mutual parting of ways, which I think is what's going to happen. I think, you know, similar to how Belichick came in the 90s from the New York Jets, the same thing could happen where the Pats get some kind of maybe like a trade value or a draft pick um, for trading Belichick to a team like Mike Florio reported could be Washington, something like that. But I think there's no doubt in my mind that a new voice in that locker room needs to be there. And it can't be Bill Belichick. And if it is going to be Bill Belichick, which I would be very shocked at, he's got to change his tune. You know, he can't be... Because um, I, I still think he's a good coach. He's a, he's a good coach when it comes down to game play. It's just the problems that he's had was being the general manager and basically making all the personnel decisions. That's been his biggest issue. Exhibit A being Jack Jones, who he thought... um was a, a good value pick, you know, totally ignoring the red flags that Jones had during college. And then when you see that uh, you bench him and he gets very emotional about it, he's leaving, not even talking to the media. He's not even showing up at team meetings or stuff like that. You just decide to cut him right there. Then when you look back on him, along with that 2022 draft, where you have guys like you picked Cole Strange and Tyquan Thornton, you could have traded for Tyreek Hill as uh, Chris Curtis likes to say on a uh, Kenneth Curtis you could have had uh, just some other weapons aside from Nikhil Harry in 2019. It just the personnel, this idea of that him being like smarter than everyone in terms of off field decisions is gone away. It's gone away and it's not effective anymore. It's that area where he hasn't evolved. And that is what's doomed his time in New England. So if I was Robert Kraft, I'd be looking at the end of the year and trying to figure out what is the easiest way to make Bill Belichick 
not be the head coach and what's the more respectable approach. Because you can't have him back. You just cannot have him back. Because there are going to be some players who do return to that team in 2024. And uh, I will tell you that one of them might not be Mac Jones. Because I think when Mac Jones got benched, as I said, he ended his career on just a god-awful interception. I mean, when you look at that interception, he totally T-Rexed it. He threw it short right to the defender. The easiest thing to do, you could be playing flag football when you were eight years old. What you want to do is throw it above so that even if it's incomplete, no one has a chance to pick it off on the defense and so that you get another chance. And not only that, even if he did complete it, he had a touchdown. He had the touchdown. So you either throw it long because it'll be incomplete or you throw it right in his hands, which he had Mike Gesicki. You know, at least overthrow it rather than underthrow it. And honestly, I got to tell you, it's hard because he is a sympathetic figure, at least to me, because when you listen to him in the post game and you watch him on the sidelines um, being emotional, some are saying on the verge of tears, similar to what Andy Hart uh, had said during the show, is that he just sounds like a broken man. Not a broken player, but a broken man. Just considering the circumstances and the situation that he was brought, that was presented to him. Not saying he was he's going to be this like all-worldly quarterback if he gets the 49ers offense. Like, I still, I don't believe that. I don't believe that he's he's the guy. I've said this for weeks and weeks and weeks. He's not the long-term solution for New England. But you at least want to give him a chance. Give him a shot to do something. Okay, so maybe he's just going to take this bye week and decompress. But honestly, I don't know if you can put him back on the field after benching him three times this season. And you can't even put Bailey Zappi in because look what happened when he came in on that final drive. He tried to get cute with the fake spike. He wasted too long. He literally went like that instead of just the quick one and then throw it. The throw was even awful too in triple and quadruple coverage. So honestly, your best options is getting Malik Cunningham from the practice squad or Will Greer, guys who had not taken a single snap at quarterback at all during the regular season. And really, when you look at the future, which is what I'm about to do, is that you need to look for the draft for your next quarterback. And luckily, this draft class is deep. You got Caleb Williams, Michael Penix Jr., Drake May, Bo Nix, J.J. McCarthy, and so many more. So I think that high pick, I mean, it really depends on like what goes on. Because I think a lot of projections are saying, oh, Marvin Harrison Jr. would be perfect receiver for the Patriots if they got a top five pick. But then when you also have this deep quarterback class, you don't know how many teams are going to go for them. And you don't know how many teams need it. I mean, so far we know that, at least in my eyes, Falcons need it. Um, Probably the Jets. Jets will probably need someone, not immediately, but they'll probably look to the future for that one. Um, you know, you know, you know, some of the teams that, that have those quarterbacks. So how deep can you wait if you want to get a guy like Marvin Harrison Jr. or someone other than a quarterback, um, in that situation? That's just me. But right now the Patriots franchise is in a mess right now. It is an absolute mess. And, you know, everyone who's not a Patriots fan are going to be laughing now. Oh, look what happened 25 years, and now they're back in the cellar or something like that. 
you know, I'm I'm in the level of acceptance, as Christian Fourier likes to say. It's the five stages of grief. The very last one is acceptance, and I am there. I am in the acceptance of this team stinks, and they're not going to be getting any better until drastic changes get made. So that's what I am. So good. it's a good thing I'm watching the Bruins and the Celtics almost every night because they are the positive things going on uh, in Boston. I can't take watching those Patriots games. It's literally like eating glass <laughs> with those two. Um, just quickly on the Bruins, because they have only played uh, two games since we last spoke. They go. They do a one-in-one week. They get a big win against the Islanders, but then they lose an OT to the Canadians. How about Charlie Coyle getting a hat trick? Pasternak saying in the post game that he was literally begging Coyle to just score on the empty netter, get that first career hat trick. I, just something about this team is surprising to me. And yes, they haven't really played a lot of tough opponents yet, but still, the fact that they are 11-1 and 2, that's pretty good for a team that we thought was going to be a wild card contender and not back to the top of the NHL where they were a year ago. Um, but I wanted to really spend a lot of time on the Celtics because it was a week of mostly highs, um, but there was one giant low that I really do need to get to. I'll start with the positive sides of it because they go three and one in the last four games since we last talked, including three straight double-digit victories over the Nets, the Raptors, and the Knicks at home. And I will tell you that this is what I expected with all that talent in that starting lineup. And everyone was concerned like, oh, is Jalen Brown no longer the number two guy? Oh, well, I think he answered that getting 28, 29, and 22 in his last three games. I mean, I think everyone is starting to sort of figure out their role, at least in the, the top six players that they have. You have Tatum, the lead guy who makes things look so effortless. And I was literally like chuckling out loud, just being like, this is one of the hardest shots in the world and he's making it look so easy. Um, and then you've got Jalen Brown, who you know is the number two. Kristaps Porzingis has been great. You just hope that he can play the full season. Drew Holiday with the near triple-double. Of course, him and Derek White in the back, uh, in the backcourt forming maybe the best defensive backcourt uh, in the league. And then not only that, but you've got your bench rounding out as Sam Hauser has all of a sudden found uh, a way that he can shoot the lights out. The fact that he's averaging 12 points a game and shooting 55% from three this month, that is what everyone expected. I mean, when you listen to a lot of the players, even going back to last year, they said, oh, Sam can shoot the lights out. Uh, he's one of the best three-point shooters I've ever played with. This is what they were expecting. And the thing was that his playing time last year was so fluctuated. Like he was getting 20 minutes one night. He was getting 10 minutes the other, you know, not playing at all. Um, but now he's got a consistent role off the bench. He's going to be a guy that the Celtics will go to off the bench. Bench. So far, the three locks off the bench are him, Pritchard, and Horford. Not necessarily in that order. But the fact that Hauser does have that sort of confidence that he is going to be playing every single night, I think is really good. I think it's good, and he's going to be the X factor. He's going to be the X factor for uh, the Celtics, and really the entire bench is, because where they find 7, 8, 9, and 10 uh, is going to be crucial, because you can't rely on those top six guys uh, going 35 minutes or 40 minutes every single night. You just can't. You can't at all. Um, the big story, though, that I wanted to get into in the Celtics was after Wednesday in the loss to the Sixers, 
Um, Joe Mazzula just he showed his old self again as he got into it twice with Gary Washburn. It was literally the first question and uh, Washburn from the Boston Globe, who I think, you know, you could ask Justin Turpin, who was on this podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago. You could ask anyone in the Celtics insider category that he's one of the most respected writers, maybe not just in the Celtics, but in the entire Boston community. Um, he goes the first question. He says, you know, too many threes, too many threes. And before I think he even finishes, Missoula was like, oh, I was reading an article that you wrote seven years ago about uh, the Celtics take too many threes. What's your fascination with taking too many threes? Like, that's the head coach. Oh, it was a great article. Uh, I, I think the big issue was... Really? And then later on, when Washburn decides to do the calm and the cour- courteous thing, let that one go and ask his second question. He says, you know, it looks like uh, Maxi really carved you up in the pick and roll. And Missoula's like, oh, he didn't carve us up. He's only getting one point per... He's getting less than one point per possession. Like, are you kidding me? This is... That's what infuriates me so much is that these old elements of Joe Mazzulla are coming back to light. And this was the reason why everyone or, or most people, I would say, wouldn't have brought him back was because of this attitude that he's got this sort of like holier than thou kind of thing of like, you don't know what you're talking about. I know what's right. You guys can ask, but I know what's right. Okay. The fact that he's going to these lengths, he's going to an article from seven years ago and bringing it up after a game, a team loses? Like, you shouldn't be doing that as the head coach. Like, have a little bit of respect, okay? And here's the thing. The reason why this was okay and uh, last year, and sometimes we put up with it, was because they were winning games, okay? Even he might have done this a couple of more times, you know? And he definitely did it a lot last year, but they were winning games, They were at the top of the conference, okay? This is basically the Bill Belichick story of we can put up with this as long as you win games and win championships. Well, right now, you have not won championships, so you do not get the benefit of the doubt at all. Why are you going to these lengths on any of these questions? I don't, I, unless this is your idea of like either inspiring your team about like, oh, the players didn't do anything. I thought we were just really, really close on these sort of things. Or if it's his way of trying to be funny in a sarcastic matter of just like a really bad comedian who's like, hey, uh, you know, he just says a really bad joke. No one laughs. And he has to say, I'm kidding. That's that's awful. That's not what a head coach is supposed to do. You can get at it with the media, but you can't be going something back seven years ago. That's the big issue that I have is that if you reference something last year, maybe that might be okay. But you're saying, oh, I read an article, which was a great one from seven years ago, about you're saying you're taking too many threes. Like, come on. Come on. You know you're in the Boston media market. You know you're going to get this kind of questioning. Even if you're 80 and 0 and you lose your first game, you're going to get questioning like this. And the fact that you continue to go to these lengths is unacceptable. So honestly, if the Celtics don't win it all this year, I'm kicking them to the curb. I want him fired with the rest of the other NFL coaches that I just mentioned because you cannot reference this stuff no matter how upset you might be, no matter how much you're defending your team or think you're trying to be funny. You can't do this. You just can't do it. And we'll live with it. As I said, in the same category as Belichick, 
This team has one of the best records in the NBA. We'll do that. We'll live with it. But if you don't win it all, if you don't win a championship, and you've got to face the music once again, don't be pulling out this crap over and over and over again. It just blows my mind how Missoula, like, because going into the year, and Justin Turpin talked about it a few episodes ago. You can check that out wherever you find your podcast. He was saying that Missoula looked a lot more relaxed. He looks a lot more comfortable with an offseason. You could maybe understand why last year he was so tensed up because he was literally handed the job days before training camp, and he had he felt like he had to prove that he belongs. So I get it. But this year is where it shouldn't be happening at all. Not at all. It's just frustrating that last year there are still elements when everyone says, oh, it's different here. We've turned the page. It's a new era. That last year continues to get brought up, whether it's blown leads or bad play in overtime or coaches getting into it with the media once again. I just don't get it. I don't get how they can continue to go back to these sides of things. But that's only one negative thing that happened all week for the Celtics. They won three other games right after that. And they've looked really, really good since then. So I'm not going to harp on it too much. But I just had to share that. I had to get it out there. And honestly, I probably could have put that in the LOL moment of the week. Because when you lose your second game, and you're getting into it with a reporter, that was just laugh-out-loud material, at least in my eyes. But there was something that did get into our LOL moment of the week, and we will share that with you coming up next. As I said, we're going to look at our LOL moment of the week to wrap up our show as we always do. We're going to go back into the college game. We're going to go to college football on this. We'll go to Utah against Washington. And this has been a blooper that seems to come up every now and again, but to me has happened way too many more times than it should be. We're going to go to the end of the third quarter. Uh, And if you're watching on YouTube, you can see the play right here. Uh, Utah is back. It gets intercepted by Washington. This is Alfonso Tuputala that uh, picks it off, and he's going to run, and he's going to get himself a pick six until, uh uh-oh, he drops the ball at the one-yard line. And sure enough, Utah recovers, and they take over. So what possibly was a six-point or a seven-point swing now gives Utah the ball back. Now, in context... Um, Just to let you know, after that play, the defense forced the safety, which made it then uh, 35 to 28. But there was still a fourth quarter where uh, Utah could have come back and tie that game up. Um, But still, just (laughs) I just have to hang my head in shame because this has happened, as I said, far too many times. And that play almost cost Washington the game or more so a playoff spot. I mean... Every All of the experts are saying that the Pac-12 could be getting a playoff team, and it could have been Washington, but if that happens and Utah comes back and wins, I know they had to go like 98 yards or whatever, but if you don't get the six points and Utah comes back and takes the lead like 34 or 35-30, uh, 
33, then you might have just cost it with that single blooper. And the fact is, as I said, this has happened far too many times. I mean, Deshaun Jackson with Philly, Brandon Marshall in Denver. You had that Utah player about maybe eight years ago, back in 2015, and then Oregon ran it back for a touchdown. Like, what? Oh, my God. If I was a coach and that happened, I would be taking that player and I would make him literally run sprints for the next 10 minutes down the sidelines because that is a big no, no. Like, why is even why is even that worthy of a celebration? Like the fact that you have to drop the ball right when you get into the end zone. I always like to hold on. It, you know, if it was me, I mean, you could tell. Look at me. I played football. <laughs> um, if it was me and I scored the touchdown, you know, something similar to that, I would check my feet first. You know, I I I think I don't I can't confirm this. But I think someone says, like, when you're running, you keep your head up or whatever. But if it were me on that football field, I would look at where I am. I would sort of look around to see how close I am to the end zone. And then once I get in there, then I drop the ball. Like, what has what is in these players' minds? I guess you got to ask them uh, as to why they feel it's necessary to drop the ball uh, when they start celebrating, like until you know for sure you're in the end zone, you can't be doing stuff like that. You just can't. I just don't like how many times it's happened. You know, maybe like once or twice is totally fine, but it seems like this happens far too frequently. And I would love it to stop. So I hope coaches are going into their locker room saying, when you get into the end zone, hold on to that damn football. Hold on to that damn football. That's what I'd be saying. So this week's LOL moment of the week is going to Alfonso Tuputala for taking away what possibly could have been a career college highlight and a pick six by celebrating far too soon the way many have done before him. And just like that, we are done with episode 94 of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If you're watching us on YouTube or if you're listening to us wherever you get your podcast, make sure you are following me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Twitter is at Joe Braverman PVP. And make sure you're following this podcast as well on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Let Me Speak Podcast. As mentioned, no new episode next week for Thanksgiving. So we will see you in two weeks for the 95th edition of Let Me Speak. Later!